Before we start, I want to thank all of the Weird Libertarians patrons for being a part of the show. You can find out all of the benefits of subscribing on Patreon at joinwallplus.com. That's W-A-L-plus.com. You'll get bonus content, access to the complete archives. There's over a thousand shows that you can't get in the public feed, and you'll be supporting all of our great shows. Thank you especially to our $100 a month members, John Pusillo, Vincent Peichel, Lars Nordskog, Jakey Dell, Matthew Durbin, Reinhold, Christy Avery, and Jason Doolittle. We also want to thank our main sponsor for this episode. Uh, it is Iconic Insurance. 15% of Americans are left to find health insurance on their own. And even if you get health insurance from your employer that doesn't work for you, Matt Allen and Iconic Insurance can help you find the right insurance. Just head over right now and contact him at iconic-insurance.com slash libertarians. We'll put the link in the description if you can't remember that. But Matt is a longtime listener of this program and a great guy and a good friend of mine. So please go support him and reach out right now. Thank you. And now let's get started with our show. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us. My name is Chris Spangle. It is so great to be here with you. And today we are going to be talking a little bit about Taiwan and why is it important. Nancy Pelosi, I'd be really annoyed if Nancy Pelosi set off World War III, nor would I be very surprised. Uh, so she recently visited the island and China immediately started uh, shuffling troops and threatening to shoot down her plane. Oh no, stop. And all this other stuff. And so we want to figure out why is this actually important? Uh, it seems like it caused a tremendous amount of tension between the American government and the Chinese government, specifically on the Chinese side. And to do that, we have Daniel Chang. He is a political science and economics student from the University of South Florida. He worked as a congressional intern to Rep. Gus Bilirakis in Florida. He is also the head of international analysis at Politicus. He's a Young Voices contributor. Daniel, how did you get into political commentating? When did you fall in love with politics? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, Chris, thank you. Uh, first, thank you very much for having me in your show. Uh, very excited about it. And well, I've been in love with politics, I think, since I have used mem memory. So while, while most of my friends, like, they tended to like watch probably Disney Channel, I love to watch like History Channel for, for a lot. A lot oh, before so you welcome. Eat. You're in the right place. I, I exactly. instead of going to a movie, stayed in the car listening to the Clinton impeachment. <laughs> so <laughs> exactly. I, I was right there on C-SPAN with you. Exactly. Although, although I think the Clinton impeachment was a little bit R-rated for you at the time. Yeah, I know. I was twelve, and believe me, I was like, "What does this cigar mean?" Oh no. Um, well, so since then, I've been very interested in politics, and came to the United States to study in 2017. As you said, I'm, I'm a political scientist and an economist, an economist, and uh, working, been working with uh, Young Voices for a couple of years now, and it's been great actually. So, always been interested in, in American politics, international politics, and uh, and British politics as well. So uh, you said you came to America. Where did you come from? Uh, Venezuela. Okay. All right. How how are things there? <laughs> well, you know, the, things are going as they're going. Uh, not very good. Not very good. <laughs> let me tell you that. Yeah. Well, maybe. We, so let me ask you real quick before we dive into Taiwan, because uh, you yeah. just threw me a curveball there. Uh, maybe we can have you back and, and talk about that in a, in a broader spectrum. But, you know, last we heard there was a coup and... The you know the Maduro was term limited out, and so your Congress was taking over, and 
uh, I mean, have things calmed down from hyperinflation? I mean, what is the situation on the ground in Venezuela these days? Uh, well, so situation on the ground, I haven't been in, in my country since 2018, so four years now. So, of course, what I know is I know because of my friends and, and the, the few people who still live in there, because a lot of people have left the country. Uh, I think like 10%, maybe more, wow. over the last uh, three years. Um, but the situation is that Maduro, regretfully, has, you know, he has uh, consolidated his given power. Uh, as you said, the, the, um, the attempt of the opposition to, you know, Juggle home out of office because he won in a really fraudulent election. Didn't work out. Didn't pan out. Uh, the sanctions of the United States. If, my, if you ask me, that's another can of worms. But they haven't worked in one way or another. And Maduro has you know, consolidated his power on power and has made alliances with other sanctioned countries like Iran and, and well, Russia and China, and whatnot. And he's been able to to just linger on in power, really. Well, that's too bad. Yeah. <laughs> Your country deserves better. Uh, I hear it's a beautiful country, and uh, yeah, that, that's that's fascinating. So next time Venezuela is in the news, I will be sure to to email you. But right now, we're talking sure. about Taiwan. Let's talk about something like less le- uh, less depressing. Let's talk about World War Three, right? Yes, right. <laughs> Let's some something that doesn't personally impact our friends and family. Oh wait, um, <laughs> exactly. Where is Taiwan and why does anybody care about this small island? Yeah. Let's just start well, with the real basic stuff here. Yeah. So Taiwan is an island that is really like really next by China. Uh, it's across the Taiwan Straits. Uh, and that is, it's, it's an island that has been uh, administered uh, basically independently from Beijing since uh, the end of the Chinese Civil War in the 19, 1947, 1947, 1948. Uh, basically, the communists won, but the nationalists were like the anti-communist side. They lost and they retreated uh, to Taiwan and they've been governing that island ever since. Uh, for the first, like, I want to say 30 years, they actually think thought that they were going to like reinvade China and conquer it. That, you know, they didn't work out. Uh, and ever since, they've been governing uh, themselves. And since the 1990s, Taiwan is a democracy. It's a presidential democracy. And, you know, there's always been this tensions between Taiwan and and China, because China says that Taiwan is an, it's a part of, of China and that the annexation and why either peaceful or non-peaceful uh, of the island, it's a, you know, it's a cardinal goal. It's a really important goal for the Chinese Communist Party uh, ever like since they, the war ended. Uh, actually, they didn't invade at first because the U.S. supported the Taiwanese government. And that's why they didn't invade at first. Um, that's yeah, if like I remember the, correctly, at the beginning of Mao, at the beginning of the Cultural Revolution, the wealthiest people in China fled to Taiwan, which is why it's so prosperous, which is why China wants its hands, sort of like Hong Kong. We've seen what's happened in Hong Kong over the last decade as they've choked the freedom out of it. Yeah, it's a, it's a similar, a, bit, a little bit different story than Hong Kong, but it's like similar principles maybe. It's different. Uh, so China says it's theirs, um, and it, but it has been ruled by, in the case of Hong Kong, they were ruled by the British and then by themselves for a while. In Taiwan, they've been ruled by themselves for, I want to say, 70 years more. Uh, and yes, they are, they are, they've been quite a prosperous uh, country. They have adopted free markets. They've adopted a democracy and all that. And China has always, you know, wanted to take it. But it's not only because uh, they wanted to take it because of the resources, which, although we can delve into that because of the chips, the semiconductors and all that. But it's also because a really important geopolitical location. Uh, Taiwan is in the middle of what U.S. policy says is the first island chain. So they divide the, you divide the Pacific basically on three, but mainly two island chains, which are you know, a set of islands. 
uh, that which are important to control in order to, you know, have um, to keep China at bay to really, you know, control the Pacific. And Taiwan isn't, it's really difficult to say without a map, but basically Taiwan is in the middle of that first island chain. And if Taiwan uh, falls to the Chinese Communist Party and, and, and to China, of course, they will have, you know, a very, very powerful position to expand their influence uh, throughout the region, throughout the Pacific, throughout the South China Sea. And, you know, they, it will be like an unsunkable aircraft carrier. Uh, for the Chinese government. So that's also like the geopolitical part. Yeah, almost like Ukraine, where we're talking about sphere of influences. Tell me if I have this correct. You know, Ukraine is sort of in between the Western sphere of influence and NATO and Russia's sphere of influence. Pretty clearly, uh, the majority of the country seems to not want to be uh, part of Russia or else they wouldn't be fighting so hard. You know, it goes back to the Monroe Doctrine and how we fought to keep Cuba and and Puerto Rico and other places kind of, you know, uh, in the American sphere of influence. The Chinese essentially don't want America or other countries to have the ability to reach them from air bases there, and they want to control that space. Do I have that correct, that this is really about that zone of influences that, that thir- first world countries kind of can protect themselves yeah partly is is of that like as far as as far as influence but it's also part of like a national mythos that the chinese communist party has been telling themselves for for the last 70 years so if you check chinese history you've had you know times of um unification and then disintegration that's like a trope in chinese history uh and the last time that china disintegrated was one they called the century of humiliation um after the british defeated them uh during the two opium wars when they took Hong Kong and all that. Uh, basically, China disintegrated as a functioning state. And it was a really proud nation. And they got, you know, really, the, the, they got, uh, they were the punching bag of, of many Western countries. And that, you know, created a sense of historical injustice, which is really, well, you can see that with Putin as well. Um, and retaking Hong Kong, uh, Taiwan, and well, they eventually did that with Tibet and, and other regions, is part of what, uh, the Chinese Communist Party says, well, this is the end of that. You know, we are um, reivindicating ourselves from that century of humiliation by foreign powers. And taking Taiwan back is like basically, you know, the, the jewel in that crown. So it, it has geopolitical influence and it has geopolitical um, interest because if you have Taiwan, you can have an influence in the South China Sea and all that region. But it also has a really ideological kind of meaning and like that kind of historical uh, sense for the uh, CCP, that which is important for Xi Jinping as well. So what about semiconductors? Because I, I read on Facebook from all the experts on my feed that we only care about it because of semiconductors being made there. What Can you fill us in on that? Well, basically, Taiwan is the prime um, location uh, founder, foundry for semiconductors, which are chips that we use for basically everything. Um, from, like, of course, laptops, computers, smartphones to, like, cars and and a lot of our, our processing and a lot of w- what we need to, you know, live in, in the 21st century comes from semiconductors and the majority of them are made in Taiwan. So that's a really geopolitical importance, uh, not only for the United States, but like <laughs> for the world, because um, keeping uh, the semiconductors flowing through the global economy, is really important to keep, you know, to keep all everything going on, you know, the lights on. And in fact, as you said, uh, the United States just passed the CHIPS Act and all that. In part is to create more semiconductors in the United States. We all this issue about bringing global supply, global supply chains back to, to prevent, um, 
disruption. So uh, that that's a part of the semiconductor, the economic part of it, uh, that Taiwan, it, it's important. But I would say it's not only because of that, honestly. Uh, semiconductors are really important, uh, but Taiwan, they, their, their unique position in the in where they are, the unique geopolitical position, and the fact that China and the United States will be adversaries uh, for the time being, and it's it's kind of inev- inevitable that they're adversaries, will may, will significantly mean that Taiwan is always going to be a, a hot spot between both of them. Why do you think it's inevitable? Well, because it's it's the te- it's the tell us all the time. You have two powers. You have a rising power, and you have a hegemon or a former hegemon. And it's it's as simple as one country in order for one power to actually prevail and you know uh, be the global power um, or at least the regional power in the case of China they will have to take away their interest and fight the interest of the other power it's a, you know the, the CD, it's, it's my greek is Thucydides trap Grant, yeah, Graham, Graham Allison wrote a book about it um, yeah. called Destined so, for War yeah so it's it's really like it tells all the time in in my case um, I tend to be more like in the realist side of international poli- uh, international relations than like in the liberal side um, but the fact is that China and the United States, in order for China to become the country that they want, they, the Xi Jinping says they want to become and you know become the, the regional leader, they will have to take away from U.S. allies in the region. The U.S. will not be really comfortable with that one. So we care because... I guess it, it feeds into a larger question, question, right? You know, Pax Americana, so-called. After the fall of the Soviet Union, the American government ensures stability throughout the entire world by having bases in 160-some countries, and that's why we haven't had any major wars, despite all the wars going on. Um, Is that why we care about Taiwan, or is there another reason that the American government specifically cares about Taiwan, and, and why have they supported them through these years? Well, that's another. Also, there's a question that I talked to in my article. It's that this level of support for the United States to Taiwan it has been since the 1970s. It's in a weird place. So, sort of dichotomous. It doesn't make any sense because I guess explain the one China policy because that that sort of opens up the thesis of your article, which is we're not doing anything that makes sense. There's no moral exactly. clarity whatsoever. That's, yeah. you know, if you read Gary Kasparov about, about Ukraine and winter is coming, he talks about the same thing. There's no moral clarity to um, American foreign policy. It's very confused. The left hand and the right hand don't know what's happening. And this is a great example that you've hit on. So please explain that more. Yeah, I want to say not only, only not moral clarity, there's no strategic clarity at all. I mean, that's just they're trying to do whatever, trying to uh, throw everything on the wall, see what sticks. Uh, so what happens is you have the one China policy. As I told you, when the nationalists lost this civil war, they went to Taiwan. They, they didn't declare independence, which is a really important thing. What they did is that they said they were the legitimate government of China, just like in exile kind of thing. Uh, but they said, we'll, we'll, we'll be back, right? That's what, what was the main thesis. And the United States recognized the Taiwan government as the China government for like 30 years. But when, you know, uh, Nixon restarted relations with uh, the communist China in the 1970s, they eventually became to the one China policy, which is saying the United States said, OK, we recognize only one legitimate government of China, which is, well, in this case, of course, Beijing. And we will not recognize implicitly that the implicit uh, thing of that is that they will not recognize like Taiwanese independence or the Taiwanese claim uh, of they are the legitimate government of China. 
Uh, however, that one China policy was paired with what we call a strategic ambiguity, meaning that while we recognize that Beijing is the only China, we keep like de facto relationships with Taiwan, which is in, in all of international purposes an independent country, just they, they haven't declared it yet. Um, so we keep that like weird, the United States keeps that weird game saying we only recognize one government uh, in China, but we have relationship with both governments. Yeah, you saw it from the the Biden administration, you have the Democratic Speaker of the House going and standing next to the head of Taiwan, while the press secretary for the president, the Democratic president, is saying, we disavow this. Like, there, you have to imagine Joe Biden was just furious because he's he's having to undermine the Speaker of the House. It just, it didn't make any sense because on the one hand, one part of the government in the same party is saying one thing, and then the other is saying the other thing. I think it's the perfect illustration of what you're talking about. Yeah, and that's also part of it. Well, we have reports of like Biden wanted to Pelosi not to go to, to, to the trip. And that's also one of the issues with American foreign policy uh, over the last decades in the sense that it's very inconsistent. Uh, you have various parts within the government that have different foreign policy agendas. And of course, you have to change the government every four or eight years. They're basically their own the whole agenda is to undo what the past administration did. Uh, and that creates some like really uh, convoluted and disjointed uh, foreign policy efforts. Yeah, I think from an international relations perspective, maybe you can explain this. I mean, it's the American foreign policy is just whipsaw. There's no consistent yeah. foreign policy. What does that do for America and what does that do for the world and what would you prefer to see? Well, what it does for America is that it diminishes its uh, its, bar- its bargaining power, really. Because when it, when America says, makes a commitment, uh, you know, the other actors, they do know that that commitment will not, probably will not last for the next president. Um, and what the other actors say is like, well, you know, America is not really a reliable actor, right? If we need to guarantee uh, a negotiation, a treaty or whatever for a long period of time, America is not the best, you know, is the best actor to do so. That's what our allies would say. But of course, the the adversaries of America would say, well, you know what? I can just wait it out, right? I don't care if America says something. I know that they, they, that Biden will probably lose 2024 if he runs or not. And the Republican president will try to basically undo everything that the Biden did and vice versa. So they just waited out. And that, um, and every time the America changes its foreign policy, you know, it takes a, it, it's a lag. You know, there's a lag, a period where decision makers are trying to figure out what's the new strategy. And they, during that time, of course, adversaries grow stronger uh, because they don't change that policy. They have the same one for the last what, like five, 10 years. So, of course, what America needs is it, it's understandable because part of democracy that you change. A policy, right? That's why we have a democratic process. But in foreign policy, you need to at least keep the most important uh, pillars of, of foreign policy need to remain, need to survive the, the peaceful transition of power. Because if not, then it's not a policy, right? It's just um, a whim, right? It's just uh, it's just talking points. It's governing by talking points instead of governing by you know governing. Yeah, no, <laughs> I think we all feel that on the on, on the state side version of it right like biden comes in and undoes all these executive orders there's nothing passed by congress there's no treaties ratified by the senate or anything you know so it's the same concept uh the system is fundamentally broken from where it was so let's put you in charge 
Uh, we changed the Constitution. Daniel Chang <laughs> is elected president. Um, you know, what foreign policy towards Taiwan do you set or do you think we ought to follow and why? Well, what I would think is the United States needs to make it clear that the China, the China cannot, and make it really clear China cannot uh, try to invade Taiwan. And for that, we need to make deterrence uh, a, a viable option. The, the problem with Ukraine is there was no deterrence at all. We kept Ukraine in a weird place that was neither NATO nor not NATO. So, you know, Russia said we can't invade and probably the West will do nothing. Um, and that's one of the reasons they invaded. What we need to do with, with Taiwan is making clear that strategic ambiguity worked for like two decades, maybe. Uh, but, you know, we're not in the 1980s anymore. We're into 2022. And, and China has the ability to contest American uh, power at sea. So we need to make quite clear that although we will not recognize, for the United States, will not recognize the Jewish uh, independence of Taiwan, um, the United States is committed to prevent any um, cross-strait attack right, from either side. Of course, Taiwan's not going to attack China, but we will say, well, you know, we're there to prevent any war between China and Taiwan. We keep the one-China policy. Taiwan's not declaring independence. I don't care about that. What I care is that there will be no cross-strait invasion um, because it will bring mayhem to the global economy and to the region and all of that. That's what I would do. It sounds reasonable to me, but you and I know I'm not going to be put in charge. <laughs> I hope you are. Um <laughs> All right. Shameless self-promotion time. Where can people follow you? Uh, I'll have the link to the article in the show notes, but if people want to follow your work, where can they do that at? Uh, of course, uh, you can follow me. You, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my my handle is over there. It's Daniel E. Chang C. I work uh, in, at L American also as well. So I make some op-eds over there and I publish all my work in my Twitter account. So you guys follow me and read all, my, all the things that I do. It will be very nice. All right, Daniel Chang, Young Voices contributor, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, listener, for being here, and we will see you again soon. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.